0: Welcome to the Final Draft Podcast. My name's Andrew Popel, and today I'll be joined on the podcast by Eliza Henry-Jones. Now, here on the Final Draft Podcast, we explore books, writing, and literary culture. Every week, I make a show called Final Draft that uh, is produced um, and broadcast from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. Now, the whole deal with Final Draft, we are dedicated to exploring Australian writing, from debut Australian authors to the classics and the established writers that you know and love. Each of these conversations looks into the issues that drive the author's storytelling as a way to help you discover more from the books you love. These are the stories that make us who we are. Now, to us, i broadcast from the lands of the Gadigal people. I am recording on the lands of the Darug and Gunungara people. I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of those lands and pay my respects to their ongoing connection to their lands, acknowledging that these are unceded lands and that a treaty has never been made with Australia's First Nations. Now, today on the show, I'm going to be joined by Eliza Henry Jones. Eliza's new novel is called Salt and Skin. And Salt and Skin is this gripping novel full of ideas. It takes the reader to the Hebrides and opens up past, present, and future as a family struggle to settle into their new home. So far from Australia. Uh, I'm going to let Eliza tell you more about it. I loved it. So join me as we discover Eliza Henry Jones' Salt and Skin. Hello, Eliza. I think it's connected us. Yes, it has. How are you today?
1: I'm very well, thanks. How are you?
0: I am very good. May I begin by complimenting you on that bookshelf behind you?
1: <laughs> Lockdown project, <laughs> getting them all up. there.
0: <laughs> it is terrific to be joining you like, and to have a chance to talk about salt and skin. This was just such a trip. Um, like, When it arrived, I, um, I immediately handed it to my wife and I said, Orkney Islands, you're going to want to read this. Because, um, well, because we've, we've travelled through Scotland together and that was one place we didn't get to that she really wanted to. But I, I absolutely loved it. I loved everything you did with it. And I'm, I have to say in advance, as I, you know, revisited my questions, I don't know if I'm going to be able to cover, I think, everything that you were saying, but I, I really want to give it a shot.
1: It's densely packed.
0: <laughs> and yet effortless. Thank you. I, I think uh, otherwise, shall we? Beautiful. and scene. Um, I'm joined on the show today by Eliza Henry-Jones. Eliza is the author of novels including In the Quiet, Ache, Piers for Pearl and How to Grow a Family Tree. She's made award lists including the New South Wales Premier's Literary Awards, Indie Awards, the Arbia, and the CBCA Awards. Uh, we won't get to the conversation if I list them all, but I'm so pleased to be welcoming Eliza with her new novel, Salt and Skin. Hello.
1: Hello. Thanks for having me.
0: It is it is fantastic, and as as I confessed as we were getting started, I've just been so involved with Salt and Skin. It is an incredible novel. Um, I am very excited. Would you would you allow me to um, to introduce the story a little bit? Please do. So I'm going to take us far away from where we currently are. Luda has arrived with her children, Darcy and Min, to the storm-bruised islands of northern Scotland. The family have fled Australia in a storm of grief and recrimination, seeking to find a new home and purpose to their lives. Luda is a photographer, and she's been employed to document the impacts climate change is having on the islands. She's also She also immediately alienates herself from the local community when she publishes a photograph depicting a family's unimaginable tragedy in a landslip accident. Settling on the tidal island of Cheney, the family are fascinated to discover an ancient history of witchcraft and religious intolerance. The island was supposedly home to witches, and it's said that in the evening light, scars are revealed to those who have known tragedy in their life. The darker history of the islands is almost too close to the surface, they realise, as they come to know the foundling Theo, who was washed ashore as a child and whom the locals believe to be a selkie. Theo also exists both in in and outside the whole community and must navigate acceptance as one who does not truly seem to fit in. Eliza, like that's that's like just the setup. That doesn't <clears throat> even tell us what comes next. There is so much. Look, I actually, look, I read in your bio that you live on a flower farm in Victoria. That feels so far away from the windswept Scottish islands you depict in Salt and Skin. Let's start there. Like where did this begin for you?
1: Um so I live on a little flower farm in on Warrandry Land in the Yarra Valley, so it's very lush, hilly, green, a lot of trees, a lot of ferns. And um a friend, a writer friend, sent me the memoir by Amy Liptrot um called The Outrun and my background's in psychology and addiction. And this memoir sort of charts Amy's experience of um alcohol addiction and how she returned home to the Orkney Islands in order to kind of um reclaim herself and chart a new, a new route for her her life. And, um, while that part of the book was really fascinating and beautifully done, I just became absolutely obsessed with the Orkney Islands. And I dragged my husband there in 2017. And, um, the day we arrived, you know, we went out to a high car and it was so windy that we couldn't even get the doors open on the high car. And he's just looking at me over the roof. Like, why did you want to come here? Because I normally like really kind of warm mild tropical places. And, um, the Orkney islands are just, they're wild. Like they're, they're, this little, this little collection of islands in, in between the Atlantic and the North sea. And uh, there's hardly, there's very few trees and a lot of the trees are braced up with metal because of the wind. Mm. Um, you know livestock get blown off the cliffs um it's just it's wet it's windy um and it's beautiful and um while we were there we did a tour of St Magnus Cathedral so it's this beautiful big kirk in the middle of the capital of Orkney Kirkwall yeah Kirkwall you said that didn't I um so this beautiful big kirk um was they began building it in 1137 and it's all red and yellow sandstone and it's um, got all these little spiral, narrow spiralling staircases and different floors, and it's it's you could spend weeks there exploring, I think. And we while we were there, we saw the dungeon, um, which is up high in one of the walls, where they used to keep um, people. And overwhelmingly, they were women. In on the Orkney Islands, it was ninety percent women um, accused of witchcraft. And they have the hangman's ladder on one of the upper layer levels. And they've got the there's the manacles that they wore. And something about being confronted with those objects and those spaces um, just really got under my skin and I couldn't stop thinking about it. And um, I started writing it actually not until t- oh, early 2019 when my son was very little. And it started off as a poem um, in the notes app of my phone when I was very sleep-deprived. <laughs> And that was the only way I could really find my way into the story. And it sort of grew from there. And I think I ended up throwing out about 150,000 words during the writing and editing processes. And that's for a book that is 100,000 words. So, it was quite a violent process writing in a lot of ways.
0: There's so much I want to get to, but now you've you've sort of thrown that onto the table i've quite often authors will talk to me about that editing process the things that had to be left behind and i'm not sure if you fully appreciate what that means to a reader that has loved a book because of course we have questions and of course a book can't contain everything um and our first like our first you know instance is to um manacle you in a kirk until you tell us what those hundred and fifty thousand words contained um you mentioned that being a violent process. Violent, how so? like what does it what does it mean to you to uh, to borrow the cliche, kill your darlings?
1: I'm I'm pretty ruthless as a writer. I write very fast and then I throw out a lot of words. Um, still hundred and fifty thousand words, I think is a personal best for me. Um, but I think just when I'm rereading anything that doesn't pique my interest, anything that doesn't hold my attention, if it's not really vital to the narrative and moving that narrative forward, it's out. And um, I mean, sometimes, you know, I wonder if, you know, there are these little nuggets of, of, um, you know, precious parts of the story that get turfed out with the, with the bigger bits. But um, overall, I think it's a, it's a process that works for me. Um, But I think it's just, How I work out what the story is. And I think some writers, I've got friends who are very clear on the parameters of the story. They're very clear on the plot. They're very clear on the characters before they even write the first word of the actual novel. They'll spend months working it all out in their heads, writing it down. Whereas I think for me, I don't really know the story until I start writing it. And even if I try to plot it, it's just going to deviate wildly from whatever route I sort of thought it would take.
0: I'm gonna hate myself for saying this. So Yukon Mari, your work.
1: <laughs> That's gonna haunt me forever.
0: <laughs> Living rent free in your head. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um let's come back to the story. The the trigger because otherwise I, I can't keep doing those bad jokes. <laughs> the trigger for the family's move is the death of Joshua, Luda's husband, Darcy and Min's father. It's a deep an abiding grief that's driven them across the world. And you mentioned earlier your your background in psychology. I feel like beginning a story in such a way it frames the narrative or maybe it's maybe it's a tethering around which the characters move. Can you tell me about beginning a novel in grief?
1: Oh, that's a really good question. I think I wanted them to be reeling when they moved to the islands, I wanted them to be in a place of yearning for connection, but having some obstacle in the way. And I wanted them to overcome that. And I think the idea of that, that grief, um, and this person that they're all missing, the absence of that person is a really striking way to conceptualize it. And I think I, I'm always sort of drawn to exploring grief and trauma. And that's, that's what I'm interested in writing about. I'm interested in discovering the different ways that people respond to it, the different ways that people process it or don't process it, um, the different ways that it damages people and helps them grow. Mm.
0: And we, we can't, like, we can't live in grief. It's, I mean, it's a necessary part of life. We can't avoid it, but we can't live in it. And I guess ultimately we, we try to move from that space and hopefully move into love. And very much this novel is concerned about love. Like it's, it's gorgeous and beautiful. The different love stories that you weave through it. I also didn't want to spoil them. So I hadn't written a question, but just there while, while you were talking, I, I really thought about that movement from grief to love. And I was hoping maybe you could just even tell us a little bit about that movement. Um, as much as you want to talk about the narrative, I'm I'm never going to spoil anything that you, <laughs> that comes well, later in the book.
1: Um, oh, I'm trying to think of how to say what I want to say without giving spoilers. Um, I think one of the things that's very adjacent to grief for me is trauma, and something that a lot of fiction does, and I've certainly done in my previous works, is sort of dangle this traumatic backstory um, early on in the novel and. Part of what hopefully keeps the reader reading is discovering what that traumatic backstory is. And you sort of build up towards this moment where a character will verbalize what they've lost, will verbalize whatever, you know, hideous experience that they've been through. And that will be like this moment of climax and catharsis, and they'll, you know, achieve closure and move on with their life. And I think my experience of trauma and the experience of trauma that I've seen in the people I've been lucky enough to work with has not been that simple. You know, the reality is that people don't always, sometimes people don't even aren't even aware of the traumatic experiences. You know, those traumatic memories can exist in a very wordless place. They can live, exist very viscerally in the body. Um, sometimes people aren't able to frame them into a narrative. Sometimes people can't, or don't want to divulge what they've been through, whether that's traumatic grief, whether it's a trauma, and I guess grief to a lesser extent. And I wanted to write a novel that, in part, was in reaction to that. So one of the characters you can sort of piece together has been through something pretty horrifying, and. While you can piece it together, that character never actually tells anyone what they've been through Mm. and they are still loved and seen and valid, even though they never actually are able to articulate that, that experience. And that was really important to me to put in there.
0: It also strikes me that love exists alongside trauma. Quite often, and you do you do depict this. This was something that that really kind of got to me as I was reading. Something that I wanted to talk about. Something that I couldn't find a way to talk about. But I think maybe you've given me a way to talk about it because in you were talking there about a traumatic backstory. I found intentionally or not, you were also doing what I would, might call traumatic foreshadowing. Um, and there was there's a scene there's two scenes in fact where a character uses. A particular type of violence, um, which I guess, I mean, I don't want to spoil, but I think I have to say this out loud without talking about characters. Um, A male character uses, like, strangulation, like, holds someone by the throat to threaten them, which, of course, like you know, depending on, on what sort of reading you're doing. But if anyone read Jess Hill's amazing, see what you made me do, or any of the associated work around that, we know that that is actually heavily tied to not just, you know, further partner abuse, but also um, killing. And I thought, mm-hmm. my God, you, I, I thought, I'm going to assume that Eliza's probably across all of this sort of stuff. Are you, is there some sort of foreshadowing here? And it, it really tinged my, like I, I was just a little bit closer to the edge of my seat um, in the way that you were, you were, again, putting that trauma on the table and helping us as readers read through it and sit with it.
1: I love that you brought up foreshadowing because that was a really big part of what I wanted to explore and this idea that these acts of violence and misgenerational trauma and these um I guess kind of systemic environments that feed into all of that replicate, you know, they just repeat mm. over time. And, um, and I, and I was very aware you're actually the first person that's asked me about that particularly the um choking, but I was very aware of that because it is, it is such a, um, in a lot of, it's very confronting. Well, I guess all, all acts of violence are confronting, but I, it is, it seems particularly confronting given the context um, and the correlations that you've just raised. And I, I wanted that in there. And it kind of, it it does, I'd say it it foreshadows trauma, but it's probably a slightly different kind of trauma than what you'd be expecting.
0: (laughs) It also, I mean, it's, it's probably one of the most overt acts of, an undercurrent of bloody-mindedness that exists in the community. So, Luda, Darcy, and Min, they find themselves in this community. Um, Theo, we're going to get to Theo. He is this incredible character who was found as a child who is both outsider and inside the community, We have incredible characters like Cassandra, who, because of her age and her infirmity, again get, sort of exists inside and outside the community. She can't be part of the daily running, but the, the members of the community that we we hear about and see about, including, um, I uh, we've gone completely off script here. All the things I said I wasn't going to talk about, we're now talking about, including um, the, the the parish priest Father Lee, exhibit this bloody-mindedness towards those outside their community. And it really, it really interestingly parallels the narrative of climate change, climate destruction, where I guess Luda is there to document the erosion of the islands. And we see this same kind of, um, I guess, social stagnation and this fear of erosion of cultural ways that Perhaps never existed as much as the fatherlies of the world actually want them or believe them to exist.
1: Mm. Absolutely, and I am really interested in those parallels between, um, I guess, bloody-mindedness and misogyny and that sort of thing, and how we respond collectively to climate change and the environment and facing something that's so damaging and insidious or facing both those things that are so damaging and insidious in very different ways. And um, I think that it was, it was kind of hard in a way because I think climate change is something that's been explored a lot in, in recent literature. And I guess just trying to do it in a way that felt like maybe a slightly different, a slightly different angle to what I'd, been reading, um, and exploring it in a way that I hope isn't going to, um, I guess, sort of just have people turn off, um, mm. and disengage from it because it's feels sanctimonious or it feels like they're being hit over the head with it. So that was quite, it, it was quite a tricky thing, I think, to sort of try and strike that balance.
0: Well, I guess you, you show us in a way, um, that sanctimony, um, depicted through the characters, you begin with this this rockfall. Luda and her family are being transported by boat and this rockfall happens and there are so many things about it that I would like to, to talk about but it really, for me, it immediately hammered home the reality of climate change on the islands and there was this undercurrent of danger that the islands... Might disappear, I believe that 's explicitly said on numerous occasions. the idea that islands may disappear, but it was also entwined with these human stories and with the past, we have the women who were accused of witchcraft that Luda becomes fascinated with researching they were accused of of beaching whales they were it was suggested that they were um, i 'm going to forget the um, the exact wording but that they were um, using witchcraft to bring fecundity and and plenty to the islands and <laughs> you know, this idea that someone might try to positively have an influence on this this world around them was, was somehow bad and evil. Uh, taking that kind of long view, how did you come to view this history and, and also that present danger through the story?
1: Um, I think that sort of stemmed from, I did a lot of research into the witch trials that happened on Orkney and I chose not to call the islands, the Orkney islands in the book, because I have deviated wildly in many, many places. But um, what really struck me was that women, the women, because again, majority of the people accused were women were often accused of doing those things. They were accused. It was um, uh, providing fruitfulness in nature. You know, there was this one woman who, was approached by a man and the ghost of his first wife was haunting him and his new wife. So she trotted on down to the graveyard and, you know, told the spirit off and told the spirit to just stay, you know, stay lying down, knock it off. Um, You know, healing children, healing animals, uh, rescuing people from storms. You know, there was, there's so much complexity in those charges. And, and I'm, I think I'm very struck by the idea of how, how, even though it was weighted towards women that were othered and disenfranchised and um, ostracised by the community in a lot of ways, accusations were also levelled at women from quite high socioeconomic brackets as well, women that were quite powerful. So just how it exists in that sort of cross-section of society. And also whether these women actually actively cultivated the their reputation as a witch or you know, whether it was just someone that had it out for them and went after them and levelled these accusations. And sometimes it could have been as innocuous as, you know, they walked past a barn, a buyer, and, you know, two years later, a cow in there died, and that could be enough to have them dragged in and charged with witchcraft. I mean, it's it's wild. And um, the other thing that really struck me is that these, often they were disenfranchised, disempowered, ostracised, we sort of attributed as as having these huge powers over the weather and over crops and over life and death. And how do we make sense of that? You know, how do you, how do you find meaning in such a strange juxtaposition? Um, and I don't have the answers to it, but I did have a lot of fun, um, Exploring it as a question in salt and skin.
0: Let me let me ask you about that fun then, because you know woven through the novel there are tales of of ghosts, witches, and selkies, and it's not it's not simply an academic historical thing. In the novel, we have I guess the phenomenon of the scars glowing, which people definitely believe they see. We have the mystery of Theo's appearance uh, being washed up as a child there are all sorts of things that i think are open questions mm-hmm. what is it like to work with the supernatural as subject matter in a book that is not essentially or even um you know implicitly coded as supernatural you know we're not we're not finding you in the horror section we're not choosing it's not it's not team darcy or team team theo type of supernatural <laughs> <laughs>
1: um I love it. Um, I really love working into that sort of liminal space between what is supernatural and fantastical and what's real, and all of the threads that have that supernatural underpinning could be explained away in another way. Um, and some of those threads, so the ghosts and another one, the ghosts and the scars, that sort of jewel, um, that, be? that sort of dual, dual reasoning, the dual backstory um, came quite early on in the creative process. Uh, Darcy, uh, not Darcy, Theo's backstory, you know, the origins of him, whether or not he's a Selkie came quite late. And initially I just had the threat of him being a Selkie. And then I kind of plugged that um, alternate possible Explanation in a little bit later, um, but can I actually, I
0: feel- Eliza? Can I super quickly? I feel like selkies, as much as they're coming to higher prominence in pop culture, they are the poor cousin to the mermaids of the world. Can you quickly explain what a selkie? Oh is for yes, the absolutely.
1: So <laughs> selkies are folkloric beings that originate in the Orkney Islands, Shetland Islands, and parts of Ireland. And the premise of them is that they're these. Seal people that swim around looking like grey fur seals, and then they pop onto the pop onto the beaches, shed their skin, and often they're women, and they'll dance on the shoreline. And again, there's quite a lot of um, patriarchal underpinnings in a lot of the selkie stories. Often a man will steal the skin, stopping the woman selkie woman being able to return to the sea, and she's then forced into servitude, basically having children, keeping house, cooking for him, cleaning for him, and all the while yearning to return to the sea.
0: Okay, so, and Selkies are just a, 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 a metaphor for marriage.
1: <laughs> yes. Um, so, I was also, I wanted to sort of turn that on its head a little bit and have um, have a boy Selkie in the story um, and what that would look like and how he would exist in the community.
0: Um. I love, I talked to you about this all day. Another one, I'm just going to drop it in here because it wasn't part of my questions, but I was really fascinated by it. And I will I will acknowledge that more than 50% of my understanding of witchcraft comes from reading too much Terry Pratchett. Terry Pratchett. But Maybe. I love, and Terry Pratchett is, a, is an incredible guide to the supernatural because of course, while all of his stories contain these incredible supernatural beings, they are also incredibly human, sometimes more so than I think many humans are. Um, and it struck <laughs> me that you were you were also kind of building up between it's Cassandra and Iris, and then Min had sort of come along as, and uh, if, if I'm reading too much in this, please say so. We might cut this out of the interview proper, but it can be a, a special at the end. It felt like you were building um, what might otherwise be traditionally viewed as a coven here. You had the three, you had the... Um, is it the hag, the, hag, the, uh, the mother and the maiden? Um, and, and you were doing this incredible thing. But, of course, as you said before, everything can be explained in another way. And, of course, it, it absolutely makes sense that generations of women in a community that is very patriarchal would bind together. They would find common cause and they would find friendship through that, which is also just what happens in salt and skin.
1: I hadn't even thought about it being building up a coven. <laughs> That's so funny. That's so so apt. Um I wow, you have blown my my little brain wide open there. Um I really like the idea of of them forming a little coven. <laughs> and Min sort of joining that. And I think for me, I just I wanted this sense of Min connecting with older generations and learning from them and engaging with them and seeing them. Um, and I think as you mentioned a little bit earlier, you know, one of the things around Cassandra as a character is that she tends to be overlooked and dismissed and underestimated as a, as an older woman. And I wanted Min to really see beyond that and, um, perpetuate the best parts of Cassandra as she moves forward beyond the end of the book
0: I mean, I I actually had, as my final question in this interview where I've kind of thrown all the questions up in the air and we're just going to see where they land, I didn't want to forget Min. And I, I, I so, I wanted to to ask you about her. So, now we're here. It wasn't until I started rereading Salt and Skin that I really truly realised how startling and, and wonderful Min's transformation is through the book. We begin, she is a girl who can barely swim. She... She really um, is not confident, and we move to minor spoiler alert. She becomes this sort of deep diving phenomenon. Um, again, hints of the supernatural, but also just this wonderful progression. She is probably one of the the only um, the only characters that really thrives. Um, but of course, this also comes. I was I can't say unambiguously. It's accompanied by violence. It's accompanied by her own kind of isolation. But it is through that strength of, of community that she finds in Cassandra, um, and in in some small other ways through the other women in the community. Was that a real sort of central um, I guess, idea, central theme for you, that that coming together of the women, particularly against some of those outside influences, the fatherlies of the world?
1: Absolutely. And I think Min really embodies that and like you said, you know, when she arrives on the islands, she can't swim. She is absolutely immobilized with terror at what people might think of her and her family. She is absolutely determined to just find some friends and just disappear into the crowd and just become part of that community. And her arc is kind of letting go of that, that terror and just being herself and, And I think out of her, her mother and her brother, Darcy, she's the one that has the most uncomplicated relationship with the islands. As the story progresses, she, she falls rapturously in love with them, um, with the landscape, I think with the community. And there's, there's a lot of joy. I think Min for me kind of embodies that idea of selkies coming up onto the shore and just dancing for the joy of it. And that, that, Fierce, there's there's sort of a fierceness to it, but there's also a joy and a gentleness that I um, really wanted to pop into the story, and that does I think reflect that wider community of women on the islands and that that yeah fierceness and wisdom and love. Mm.
0: There's almost, uh, almost like sort of like a post-humanist element to Min's progression. She comes into this community as an outsider and they are so comfortable supposedly in their own, their own landscape, their own community. And she literally and metaphorically (laughs) takes a deep dive and, and almost (laughs) becomes more a part of the landscape in her ability to be comfortable. We, um, Another character we worried we would overlook, Ewan, incredibly comfortable within the landscape, but he exists in his boat and he, he traverses the islands, whereas Min can literally exist under the sea. She mm-hmm. she is more a part of the landscape than than almost anyone, except, I guess, with a big question mark over his head, Theo.
1: Yes, Theo. Love Theo. Mm. Yeah, absolutely, and I really wanted... That connection between you and Min Min to sort of centre around the sea and to have that kind of uncomplicatedness to it. Um, And initially, I had drafts of a bit of a spoiler, but I had drafts of her and Ewan being closer in age and you know striking off on a romantic relationship. And I realised that wasn't what I wanted the story to be. Um, I didn't. I wanted her great love to be the islands and the landscape and the sea. Uh, that for her to have a, you know, this really powerful, loving friendship with him. Mm.
0: We talked, we talked off air. Um, so, you know, for everyone who wants to look a little bit behind how, uh, how interviews work, we talked off air about you and, and, and my concern that he was a character that might get missed in our conversation, but he's also, I mean, I, I feel like for some readers, man, um, they, they fear, you know, you, you can have this fear that, we are moving away from being the center of all the stories and we're not the heroes anymore. But Ewan is just this beautiful example of just existing as himself. And he never needs to take center stage. But he just feels so complete for a character who who, yeah, he he doesn't exist in the center stage the way Luda, the way Theo, Darcy and the and the others do. But I mean, I you wouldn't ask for more of him. I just just thrown in there, stand, standing Ewan here. <laughs>
1: um, absolutely. And he has he is so comfortable in his skin. And I think that's something that Min learns from him. Um, I mean, we sort of talked about how she's influenced and nurtured by the women on the islands, but Ewan is also a really big part of that. Um, and he's kind of instrumental in guiding her towards the sea and, being as comfortable in her skin as he is in his. Um, But, and and, yeah, it's his kind of contrasts a lot with some of the other characters, which do they really sort of battle for center stage and they really want to be seen um, and heard and they want other people to make space for them. Mm -hmm. So he's kind of this um, counterbalance to a lot of the other characters, I think.
0: Father Lee could take a leaf out of his book.
1: He really could.
0: Here I was concerned that I, I wouldn't get to Min, and somehow I've, I've lost Darcy in all of this. I, I, was, I was wrapped by both the progression of Theo and Darcy's stories, but also in this way it, it felt like you were juxtaposing Theo and Darcy. We, they're both these young men who are, who are special. They are physically marked out. Um, I'm not going to talk about that. That, That's, that's something that's quite, quite wonderful to discover. Um, they're also unique in who they are, but it sets them apart. It leaves them lonely. Um, I wanted to ask a little bit about the isolation of that, um, and how that plays out in the story, but I was also just curious about these two young men. So carte blanche to talk about them as you would. (laughs)
1: Um, I absolutely loved writing Darcy and Theo and when I, a bit of a spoiler, um, when I started writing, I really didn't have, well, right when I started, I didn't have any kind of um, romantic intentions for any of the characters. I mean, you know, then I was kind of thinking Min and Ewan for a little while um, and then that didn't work. But Darcy and Theo just had this pull towards each other. That ended up being one of the central threads in the narrative, and probably the thread that brought me the most joy <laughs> in the writing. And I think what really strikes me about their connection is how much is actually unsaid. They don't, they are absolutely appalling at talking to each other, mm-hmm. and they've both got this really deep yearning in them. And one of the earliest scenes is, um, Theo ending up at the ghost house where the mannequins live on the little island and Darcy and he reading to him because Theo can't read. And there's this kind of idea throughout the narrative of Darcy having too much of his story in the public space, having every important moment of his childhood documented by his photographer mother and sometimes put into, you know, sold to the tabloids or whatever, or, um, in ways that he found really damaging and demoralising. And then you've got Theo who has just washed up on this beach as a what they think is a six-year-old and has no idea of where he's come from or who he is or where he belongs. And part of their story, I think, is um, Theo working out how to give Darcy a future and Darcy working out how to give Theo his past. Mm. Um, I hope that's not too big a spoiler, but um, yeah, I had a, I had a, I had a, I had a lot of fun writing those two characters.
0: Were they, this is an incredibly visual novel. This is an incredibly sensory novel. I'll, I'll just acknowledge that you, you really engage all our senses and I think that, you know, it's called salt and skin. I think we, We can reasonably expect that from the title. Um, Were they conscious visual juxtapositions? Were we where you present Theo emerging from the ocean, sort of metaphorically speaking, he's born out of the wet, and the the notorious image that Luda takes of Darcy, um, grief stricken in this dried out um, waterbed lake. metaphorically speaking born of dry were they were they we meant to see them as parallels and parallel I guess they're they're sort of coming together
1: that is so interesting I actually hadn't thought of that juxtaposition in terms of them as characters but that was something I was acutely aware of Mm. in terms of setting it across islands based on the Orkneys and Australia because Orkney and Australia are both at the forefront of climate change, but in such elementally different ways. And, yeah, I, I think I've subconsciously kind of embodied that in those two characters. There you go. Oh,
0: that's, good. that's There you go. That's that's appearing in some second-year uni student's essay one day in the future.
1: <laughs> yeah, completely intentional.
0: Henry Jones's startling visual juxtaposition of the birth of, anyway, something like that. They're listening to this sometime in the future and they're just cribbing it, knowing that there's going to be no way to search and get done for plagiarism. <laughs>
1: it, I love that. And you know what? It's so wild, the things that you just end up subconsciously putting into a work of fiction. Like, it is it's truly astonishing.
0: And it's always, because as as often as I, I I might ask a question like that and hit the mark, I also quite often get a... nut. Nah, no, that's just you, Andrew. Um, <laughs> but of course, we live—we live in a world, and the only, one of the few ways we connect in that world is through words, through st- the stories we tell, and they can't help but fail consciously and subconsciously to represent things. So, um, the fact that the fact that you weren't like, "I am going to put a clever visual metaphor in here," doesn't mean <laughs> that 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 thing wasn't out there waiting to happen. And this is, of course, a wonderful segue. Um, we've, we've come full circle, and I'm now back to the beginning of the interview that I, I sort of threw out because I was really fascinated with, when we began talking, um, we were talking about the environmentalism and that aspect of the novel. And you talked about not wanting to, to sort of, you know, you don't want a narrative to beat someone over the head with a particular idea. And, of course, that's exactly what Luda has to do deal with through her photography, too often a visual is is not read as she would intend it, or it is read as she would intend it, but it, she hasn't realized all the other baggage it ca- takes. The novel begins with a landslip, a horrible tragedy, and Luda is glued to her lens. She is taking these photographs, and when they're published, it really turns the community against her. They feel like that she, she has exposed a private moment, It harkens back to an earlier and another perhaps ill-advised photo that she took of Darcy, grief-stricken in a dried-out waterbed. But Luda believes her art has the power to change people's minds, to spur some sort of action on climate damage. That depiction, I guess, she believes that in raising really important questions about, about what she's depicting... People will change their minds, and in the same way, you are raising, I think, really important questions about art and the power of art to actually move into people's minds and and influence them. You're not mm. you're not doing this through for photographs. You're doing this through your novels. But I was really interested about that question that you sort of you kind of leave hanging because Luda isn't forgiven so much as um, tolerated and. I think the reader would probably see a rightness to what she's doing, but they're outside that community. Can can you talk a little bit about art and the role of an artist in depicting a world?
1: Mm, um, I think the focus on art for me stemmed from the work of an American photographer called Sally Mann, and she's absolutely iconic extremely talented um, but she's also very divisive and during the 80s she took a lot of very explicit images of her children that she then published you know they are in galleries they're in I've got a book of all the images um, on the shelf behind me and they their images of her children you know naked on a bed that they've urinated on it's images of her chil- close-ups of her children's genitals covered in popsicle dribbles um you know there's these really beautiful but completely confronting images and i remember reading a long form essay about her work years ago and just being absolutely i don't know just just engulfed by the idea of you know how how as a parent do you navigate those boundaries between what stays in the public space and what goes what, sorry, what goes into the public space and what stays in the private space? And it's become an increasingly crucial question in the age of social media. But also, you know, how do you find those boundaries? Who protects the rights of the child if it's the parent transgressing them? And is there a big enough reason to justify the transgression of those boundaries? Is climate change, the crisis of climate change, enough to justify a mother? putting those very vulnerable damaging photos of her child into the public space is, you know, is climate change enough of a crisis to justify her putting photos of a little girl getting, you know, crushed by a cliff collapse? Does that, you know, justify it? And also, um, you know, there's Luda kind of grapples with her identity, not only as a photojournalist, but also, as an artist and as a mother, and I'm not a photojournalist, but writing Salt and Skin, um, Salt and Skin is very enmeshed with parenting for me and motherhood for me. I started writing it when my son was a newborn and he's now nearly four and it's come out pretty recently. So I was, that was something I was grappling with, you know, how, how do you balance that? You know, how, how do you, how do you justify it? How do you navigate it? Um, so it's kind of a little bit of a mishmash of issues that I've been mulling on for quite a while. But you know, this idea of art being able to change things is is something that I think a lot of I think a lot of writers are um, quite passionate about.
0: Mm. I misheard you there for a second, maybe because of. of- a thought yeah. that you'd given me there. I heard you say rioters, not writers. But <laughs> in the in the realm of, I mean, in the realm of, of climate action, though you, you talk about when uh, an action is justified, we do have we do have people protesting. We do have people out there trying to take action, but of course, their actions flow into the real world. Whether it's someone chaining themselves to a car steering wheel or gluing themselves um, to to ground outside a particularly important site. Um, we we have to ask, or they they have to ask themselves, and we as viewers of of the news or the like have to say, well, is this action warranted? Mm. It's also really interesting to me, um, and I'm going to try not to take you down another rabbit hole because you've been so extraordinarily generous with your time. But of course, images in particular are are there to be interpreted and. Mm as well as sort of the tension between Darcy and Luda, who view that photo of Darcy as a younger as a younger boy um, very differently. You also give us the symbols in, in the ghost house on Cheney, which are, um, I guess, sort of still up for interpretation, which is a, a kind of, a, again, a wonderful parallel, because, of course, for the carvers of those symbols, they were probably very clear and very easy to read but of course symbols will change meanings will be lost through time and you present a really i guess interesting conundrum with a novel that looks back to the past how our present will be viewed from some future point will Mm -hmm. we say will we say these actions were, were were laughably inadequate or were they the thing that turned the tide um again an open question
1: and how, how difficult it is, how quickly we lose the thread of intent when we're looking back at historical events. Mm. And um, I'm going to segue slightly with the witch marks because I became so obsessed with the witch marks. And there are these, there's this network of caves called the Cres- in the Creswell Crags. Um, I think it's south of Sheffield in England. And they just thought it was graffiti, all of these marks carved into the walls. And then these, I think they were... I think they are archaeologists, um, but I could be wrong. But anyway, these experts in those sort of markings ended up going through the cave network, and they're like, "No, these are protective spells. They're they're apotropaic markings. They're protective markings." And one idea was that these, uh, this absolutely immense number of marks in these cave network was was around. Um, viewing this cave as the gateway to hell and these markings actually being put there to protect the world from evil spirits. And I was really taken with that idea of these markings. And then when I was delving into the research around the kirk that I mentioned earlier on in our chat, um, you know, there are protective markings carved into this kirk. And when I began looking at parallels between Australia and Orkney, Um, I found that there's actually, relatively recently, a researcher has found that there's quite a lot of protective markings um, from shortly after, you know, invasion in Australia. Um, And that was a really surprising find because um, obviously people, you know, people arrived here from the Northern Hemisphere in 1788. And that is many decades after Um, what is considered, there was a witchcraft act that came out early in the 1700s, and that was kind of considered as the the end point to that kind of active, superstitious, folkloric Mm. belief in community. But when people from the Northern Hemisphere arrived in Australia, they were so startled and shocked by the unfamiliar landscape and people and animals and everything else that they actually reverted back to that kind of folkloric um, action and they reverted back to using those protective spells and they're in stables they're on the lintels of old houses they're above the mantles of fireplaces and just the way that we these, these traditions and beliefs linger, um, and again, just that idea of them being perpetuated again and again across decades and centuries.
0: Mm. And it, yeah, so many places. It, it, as you, as it as you were saying that, it kind of jumped out to me. If if this were a book in a different genre, you've got protective markings, or no, no, no. This was um, in caves near Sheffield, I think you said, but. W- protecting us from a gateway to hell now some people would say well come on that silly superstition um of course it's not protecting us from a gateway to hell there's no gateway to hell and believers would say yes you say that but it hasn't opened yet has it the markings are working
1: (laughs) that's exactly it's like you know the you pick up the rock and it's you know this rock keeps tigers away but you know there's no tigers Mm
0: -hmm. yep yep and is that is that as stupid as the you know the joke you tell tourists about um, your job is to remove um, all the koala bears from the Harbour Bridge. And I've you know, seen a koala bridge, a koala on the Harbour Bridge. It's because I'm doing my bloody job. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, but again, symbology and the meanings and what we take from them, having, I guess, both a, a physical but also a, a sociological representation, it just it's just wonderful. We've gone well away from salt and skin here. <laughs> eliza you've been so generous with your time I'm, I'm like it's such a terrific book i'm going to sort of um back introduce you for um for the the, the people that are that are listening when um when this all goes to air i am speaking with eliza henry jones we are discussing her new novel salt and skin if you got the sense from our conversation that this book has so much to offer um you would be right i've thoroughly enjoyed and i've thoroughly enjoyed our conversation thank you so much thank you so much for having me that is it for this conversation with eliza henry jones eliza's new book is called salt and skin it's out now from ultimo press great conversations or final draft is recorded on the lands of the darug and the gunnagura people uh the show to you know we broadcast from to uh, to ser which is on the lands of the gadigal people the show is produced and presented by andrew popel You can stay in touch with the show uh, through social media. I mean, look, I never say this. I always tell you about social media. Look for the handle at FinalDraft2SER on social media. You can email us if you like. If you prefer email, just email FinalDraft2SER.com. Most importantly, if you're enjoying this and you want more, subscribe in your podcast app. It means there is a new conversation with an Australian author every week. There are also bonus episodes like our book club. It's a great way to keep in touch with new Australian writing. I am Andrew Popel. I will be back. There will be more incredible conversations with Australian authors here on Final Draft. So, till then, happy reading. Bye now.